You're listening to It's a Long Story, a podcast from the Sydney Opera House that uncovers the stories behind some of the world's big ideas. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. The aesthetic aspect of architecture is also a need to be surrounded by beautiful things that contribute in our psychological peacefulness. When the war in Syria was tearing apart their home city of Homs, architect Mawa al Sabuni and her husband made the decision to stay there with their two young children rather than to become refugees. In her memoir, The Battle for Home, she writes about the experience of continuing daily life in a battle zone and the importance of architecture in determining the fates of cities. Mawa's work now is concerned with the impact of conflict on urban environments and the possibilities that can emerge from rebuilding. She believes architecture can play an essential role in strengthening communities and in healing her country. Mawa El Sabuni, welcome to It's a Long Story. Thank you. Now, Syria is a country that a lot of us in the West associate with war and destruction. They're the only stories that we hear out of Syria. What's your perspective of your homeland? The war has been now going on for almost eight years, so it's no surprise that everybody is associating Syria with war. Um, We as well, as Syrians, still associate our country with war, and many of us who live in the country, many of us still are being in conflict zones, but in my case, I live in a city which has been majorly affected by war, but now for two years, I mean, it's a different story now. It just, you know, it's much cooler. The the conflict has passed and we have no more battling in the city. You write in your book, A Battle for Home, about a history of government corruption in Syria that existed before the war. Yeah. And the impact that that has had on the architecture and the urban planning of of the cities of Syria. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was it about governments before and after the war Mm. that, that made them vulnerable to corruption? You see, the history of corruption started in the region, not only in Syria, in the late phase of the Ottoman Empire. That was in the falling phase and corruption was was ruling at that time and then had been in, enhanced and took root while uh, under the colonization mandate. So uh, under the French in certain countries and under the British in other countries. And since then, it has been an epidemic in our countries. Uh, of course, every country uh, worldwide suffers from corruption, but there are percentages and we have so high percentages of corruption because of this history. And when it comes to architecture, architecture works with two other, let's say, junctures, which is economy at the capital, the capital of money, the legislation body, which is the authority. So city's authority plus the development the cap- industry yeah. that, that exactly. provides the money to create the buildings. That that would go through the channel of an architect or an engineer who can uh, manifest and design uh, the visions of those two. Uh, so when those two are corrupted, you can imagine how difficult for the third uh, handle. And this is what happens in my country, in our cities, that the city's uh, planning committee and the city's authority uh, had taken so many wrong 
decisions and with the help of ignorant and sometimes arrogant architects uh, just you know vandalized the whole the whole um, look and image of the city this as you say is not a new thing and it's not a result of the war it's something that pre-existed the war so let's go back to your own childhood yeah what sort of neighborhood did you grow up in i grew up in a neighborhood called it's called new homes because it's um it's not a suburb in the like australian <laughs> uh, suburb uh, uh, meaning i mean just uh, because it's very close to the city just you know 10 to 5 minutes uh, by car and can go 15 to 20 minutes on foot and you will be in the city center we had no traditional housing we had block uh, block building three stories building no more pleasant uh, pleasant area to live in so it was like an apartment that you lived in yeah mm. yeah you describe your family as one that was and i'm quoting highly conscious of class distinctions and especially condescending towards the vulgar non-city residents we were separated from those pariahs in our schools neighborhoods and streets mm-hmm. what was your family like you can also call it uh, a typical uh, family of homes because most of us was just uh, both parents educated, uh, university educated, good income, big apartment, network, the social network is also from certain class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't approve of this because uh, as I grew up, I I learned that uh, things shouldn't be this way, but we're just inside this box. Right. Mm-hmm. So, it was, so it was a very sort of tight, closed community. Um, funny enough, it's not tied as it should be, it's, it's ruled by status. Right. Just, you know, appearances. So what did your parents do? My father was a doctor and my mother had a biology degree, but she, she was uh, staying home mom. Mm-hmm. And do you have siblings? Yeah, we're four. Okay. Yeah, well- I'm the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> so your family life growing up, um, is there any, is there, are there any memories that stand out for you? I'll go back with you there, but I mean, first I have to explain, because of the war, the war takes takes over your brain, and basically what you have in mind, because of, of I, I, I believe it's the shock of the event, that uh, memories, even memories from the war stops to, I mean, it disappears, and you you become to have to have a, a short term memory so it's very difficult for me to remember things from the past which i feel like a very old lady <laughs> seriously that's so 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 i mean it sounds like it's almost a sort of protection mechanism or something that I your think brain the, sort I, of puts a wall up around things i think this is how the brain works because even my daughter and my son uh, find it difficult to remember at this young age, 13 and 10, to remember childhood, uh, their er- early childhood. And they remember certain images, but they are aware that they've lost, they've had this memory gap thing. Yeah, so when you say strongest image, I mean, memory of childhood, I just, you know, I may remember myself uh, as a tomboy <laughs> playing soccer with the boys in, in the street, going on my bike, uh, but I mean, I don't know what else to rem- to remember, really. That's amazing because I assume that you're not the only person who's had this effect, right? No, that, that this hasn't, hasn't is this is across a culture, so yes. a culture has, in effect, lost their memory. 
Unfortunately, yes, as I'm saying, it's, it's shocking to, to hear my children saying this. You know, I'm a grown-up, I'm an adult, I, I have decades to remember. Uh, but they have got like a couple of years and they just, you know, they have gap. They remember things, but others, they went uh, black. Do you remember the war breaking out? Yes, that's that's easy to remember. <laughs> what what happened? What was your experience of the outbreak of war? Uh, uh, you mean like emotionally or what, uh, well, well, sort of both. I mean, do you do you remember what the signs were that this was happening? Did you hear a, a report mm. on the radio, or, or no. was there? No, uh, believe it or not, the the hysteria of society. You will notice that it's too difficult to make a peaceful or calm conversation with anybody. People just, you know, were on the edge. They were frightened. They were angry. Right. Yeah, because the the elders were frightened because they were wiser. Mm -hmm. So they they knew the kind of new... I mean, I remember my mother-in-law, she she has deceased now. She was so frightened, you know, she was unable to explain why. But they were just so frightened. They knew that something big will happen. The young and the the driven were just, you know, so angry. You cannot mm, sense with them. What was it that they were angry at? Everything. They were angry at everything. And that's, that's the challenge. Because I'm not in favor of what happened on both sides. But I mean... The problem with revolt, and this will sound very controversial, and I know that people won't agree, many people won't agree, but the the problem with revolt is that it is driven by anger. And anger can be, I mean, it's destructive. It's a destructive uh, mode of mind. And uh, yes, it, it leads to very severe consequences. Do you remember the first time you saw violence around you as a result of the war? Heard. Heard. Yeah, because uh, we shut, we, we, I mean, we, we, we shut the windows, we closed up the shutters, we sat on floor because uh, bullets were just everywhere. And it's what, it was very weird and very strange to hear the bullets and the, the guns uh, out in the streets and... Of course, many people died because they were curious. They just, you know, opened their window and just were killed. Wow. And you were there with your husband and two little children at the time. Yeah. They were around a little bit uh, after three, my son, like three and a half or more. And my daughter is six and, and plus. What did you think about protecting them? We just try to take uh, the precautions to just be away from the source of uh, as far as we can. I mean, people just, you know, went into uh, the hallway or sat and uh, protected by a room or two from the facades and shut down. So you'd them. sit in the innermost rooms of the house and... Yeah, the centre of the house and uh, as, as, as low as you can go when you hear something, not all day, of course, mm. yes. You get asked a lot why you didn't leave. Yeah. <laughs> 
But you can understand why people want to know because, you know, when you imagine being in a city with a young family in that kind of extreme conflict situation, you know, the urge to flee that must have been extraordinarily strong. I mean, people imagine that it would be strong. Yeah. But it wasn't so much for you and your husband. We didn't have this urge. We didn't have this urge. Of course, it's a, it's a natural instinct to flight. You hear the danger and you flee. Uh, but as rational beings, you could fight this urge. The key word for me is patience. That was what just ruled our mind at the time because many people uh, left because they couldn't take it anymore. It's not... It's not the urge of fleeing as much as the urge of, I cannot take it. I just, you know, it's too much for me. Anyone at this situation, just imagine yourself in, in a movie, let's say a movie image or a movie clip where you are in a jungle or just, you know, in, in some kind of uh, danger frame. And the first thing you will do is to look at your surroundings. And then you will uh, imagine your route, where to go, what could happen. You can imagine your journey. You will imagine your destination as well, if you had the time. And if you imagine this well enough, at the time where we we were trapped, basically, uh, to stay and uh, take refuge at at where at and just. Uh, siege ourselves was uh, was the safest in a rational way of thinking. But if you uh, go into the psychological uh, uh, the psychological makeup of that moment, like I said, uh, it's it's the lack of patience sometimes, and sometimes it's uh, for other people it's the dream of. Uh, they yeah, they would imagine the post uh, post uh, um, scenario of this and this is a word that we heard from so many people there is no future here mm-hmm. so it's not the urgency of the presence mm-hmm. but also the 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 lack of uh, fate in the future uh, also i i should make a note here that for other people that was very urgent. Other people, we just, you know, we know many people who had the whole building collapsing over their heads. Mm. And that's when, I mean... That's when ha- you have less of a choice, I suppose. You have no choice. Mm. You have no choice. I mean, everything is collapsing. Your world is collapsing. Yeah. So you considered what a refugee journey would be like, you know, leaving Homs seeking asylum in a neighbouring country, trying to... That's step one. That was for us step one. Then step two was uh, more faith-oriented, for example, to be patient, I mean, to accept that you are, that uh, hardship is inevitable. Having considered the possibility of becoming refugees and leaving yeah. Syria when you thought about the realities of that and the deep uncertainty of that future and the realities of how that would play out, you decided to stay. You also had a house still standing. 
I'm one one person from many who stayed. They will say I would rather to die in dignity. So dignity as well, just you know, a concept that was very evident. Because what does it mean? I would rather to die in dignity because people would imagine this and they will feel that they will be they will be deprived from their dignity, being unwelcomed guest, being a need. Mm. I mean, it says it's a damning indictment of the way that we treat refugees internationally, isn't it? Uh, that's that's very also controversial and ca- cannot, for me, it cannot be, uh, it cannot be summarised under one judgment F- because on one end, there, there are so many uh, bad behaviours and bad attitudes towards uh, uh, refugees that should be condemned. But on the other, there are refugees who, and I hope people will will forgive me for this, but I mean, some percentage of refugees uh, weren't really refugees. They they took advantage of uh, the urgency and crisis of others. And they just, you know... um, seeked asylum because they wanted the future as i said they wanted the bounty they 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 thought really uh, existed and if for for many proved to not to be and a percentage of those come back came back uh, because they were disappointed mm-hmm. Even though a lot of your compatriots couldn't see a future, you always could. Uh, no, not I. Not that, uh, that I dreamt of any uh, utopia that will come after the war. No, no, that's not the case. It's just you know, I, I didn't allow myself to uh, to imagine something that I have no control of. I just you know. I know that future can be bad or good, and it's for me, for in, in in my view, it's not my place to live according to a ju- according a judgment that I cannot make now. I have uh, the the power to control this moment and this moment only, and this is what I chose to do: is is to make the best of this moment. During the war, what was a typical day like for you, a typical family day? Oh, <laughs> exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you see, in the war, there, there were many phases where just, you know, many challenges and each phase was, uh, was uh, titled or just, you know, uh, under, under this uh, overwhelming uh, ch- challenge of the time. So, for example, there were times where a life threat could be of one kind, could be snipers. And it can, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about phases that happened. I mean, just, you know, we had the snipers, we had the mortars, we had the shelling, we had uh, the shooting, we had the kidnapping. Uh, yes. That's about it. <laughs> so, I mean, but, I mean, but in the middle of all of this, you have to get your kids to school, right? Yes, yes, and we did, and they were endangered, and certain kids 
died in schools. They actually died in schools. They died under mortars. They they were killed by snipers. And that happened all around us. And just people, as I explain in the book, I, I share like um, several stories of this, on how people just were just being killed in the middle of the street. And people, believe it or not, continued what they were doing. I mean, it, it will pause for a moment, then they will remove the body or bodies and continue, not as if nothing happened, because you see it until now, you see it on faces. The look on eyes, I mean, just, you know, nobody's just uh, have a normal face. The sadness and, and all of this is just, you know, evident. But people moved on with their daily life businesses despite everything and uh, we, um, we're talking you said typical day because I mean this is the life-threatening events which could take be on one day and on the other just pause for for a day or two then reoccur uh, but the daily challenges were just you know the the shortages of uh, amenities mm -hmm. so we've got no electricity and people just went crazy because businesses stopped uh, hospitals stopped you know household uh, work stopped everything got paralyzed and everything was so stressful to get done and people were just you know getting by through the day just was nerve-wracking and many people left because of mm. electricity not only because bu bullets and then the shortage of water shortage of gas shortage of uh, heat we had like two winters without heat in our winter i know many people <laughs> have this i don't know why they do have this stereotype that uh, Syria could be a warm country, but the winter is uh, is very severe. It's just, you know, it can be minus 10 during the night and 2 and 3 during uh, the day. During the war, we had snowy winters and snow was uh, 10 and 20 centimeters outside and we had no heating inside. And well, also people died because of this. Yeah. How did you get food? Food was never lost because uh, Syria is an agricultural uh, country and very abundant. And this is something very critical now. It's very threatened at the moment, not because of war only, but because of reconstruction. And it's something I'm very, I, I try to be outspoken of and I try to draw attention at because it's very important. Usually wars are followed by famine and we were so fortunate that we haven't suffered from that. It's not just, of course, um, the destruction of the city. Um, you write that it wasn't enough, and this is a quote, it wasn't enough that your home had been destroyed. It began to feel like a further insult that you had to be humiliated by digging up trivial things just to remind you of who you were. And you write a lot in the book about this idea of the physical destruction of the city mirroring the emotional, psychological destruction. Yeah. When you're now thinking about rebuilding, how do those ideas play into it? How, how does the idea that the personal, mental, emotional, psychological self reflects the, the, the physical self? For me, it's at the core. Everything that 
architecture and architects should aim at and should protect and should uh, uh, become their core and principal source of inspiration because this is what they want. It's like farming. Land is supposed to produce food or produce uh, some kind of production that is useful and should contribute in the cycle of life. And architecture is the same. Building the city is the same. It's like growing products of land. It shouldn't be something uh, trivial and it shouldn't be something that aimed at a very uh, small group of people. It should, this is the analogy, it should feed as much people as it should. Mm. And once they are satisfied, you can move into the second level so in, in architecture and building should satisfy the basic needs not in a functional way maybe somebody would imagine at first not in a just functional way because the aesthetic aspect of architecture is also a need to be surrounded by beautiful things and beautiful surroundings that could uh, contribute in our psychological peacefulness is a necessity but also in, not in a luxurious and uh, ostentation uh, kind of approach. So it's very tricky task to, to take on, but it's very important and it, it should be at the principal theme of the work of architects. And when applied to rebuilding a completely devastated city, I mean, 60% of Homs has been destroyed. It has um, destroyed, so it's on the ground, just mm. like pancakes. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's been likened to Berlin after the Second World War. Exactly. Um, so there is a really massive rebuilding effort required, which you and your husband are involved in. We are two persons who are uh, sharing the experience, but we haven't built, I mean, we don't have an official say because you have to be, I mean, you either be appointed by the owners of the property, which could be private here, or by the official body uh, as part of uh, a team or teams that are uh, going to rebuild. One of the things that comes out very strongly in your book is the fact that rebuilding isn't just about the physical city, it's about rebuilding a culture and rebuilding a uh, society and rebuilding a people who have been shattered, you know, providing... A social fabric. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what are the principles that you think people need to be applying when thinking about how to rebuild a social fabric? First of all, uh, not to rely on corporate uh, businesses and investment, which is the major and main challenge in front of... I mean, it's an international challenge. It's not only the rebuilding of Syria. But now the government, it, all it, all we see on national TVs and media, it's just, you know, built for investment. Syria is ready for investment. Syria is, is just, you know, it's just attracting and just, you know, uh, inviting people to invest, not to rebuild. Not, I mean, and this is very dangerous and very and promising unfortunately because uh, when you we are speaking about principles we have to have uh, people at the center 
of the rebuilding. What does that mean? It means that what kind of housing people would, would like to live in. What sort of homes? What sort of homes, what sort of economy? I mean, because the way you build is the way uh, you dictate the cycle of economy. And we had this uh, small businesses, craft-based uh, uh, trade, small trade kind of economy that flourished in Syria where I, I talk about the old part, not because it's old, because people, when you when they hear the word uh, old part of the city or, or old city, they would imagine a museum or imagine something that uh, just, you know, a, a place where tourists will visit and a nostalgic architect speaking about traditional archi architecture. It's not It's not that. It's just, you know, the way this ecosystem of people worked within the channel of architecture that allowed this to, to flourish and, and, and take root. When you have a high rise, for example, the first thing you would lose is neighbors. And when you lose neighbors, this is uh, a very um, essential part of a social fabric. This is how you just, you know, unravel the whole fabric. By, by destroying neighborliness. Uh, when you just uh, wipe down a whole area with all the trees and plants and uh, the, the, the buildings that were connected in a way that reflected the life of people, you just, you know, and replace it by just a ready-made box. Mm -hmm. you, you didn't kill the social fabric only. You kill all the environment. You just, you know, wipe down a whole set of ecosystems. And in this, in this sense, you just, you know, like you paved on uh, a farming land and you don't allow the crops to, to revive itself. This is one aspect of belonging that I speak about in the book. There are many layers to this that finish up with the very, let's say, refined way uh, of creating a place that only an architect can, can do. Are you worried that history is repeating itself architecturally in Syria, that the French colonialists came in and destroyed a lot of the traditional neighbourhoods and architecture, built towers, um, undermined social fabric? You argue in the book that that was one of the reasons that that created the conditions that were favourable for an outbreak of war. It's an intentional uh, strategy that every colonial power resort to. Wherever they go, they attack the social fabric. They know because this is the way to control masses. It's just in, in Paris, and for example, the Hassman uh, planning uh, uh, replanned Paris uh, because they wanted to make their stamp. Yeah, no, to, to basically to to widen the streets in a way that the uh, revolt uh, the revolters cannot cut the streets and cannot take uh, uh, hide. I mean, or yes. shelter, or just flee. In this regard, they wanted to control the city, and to control the city, they replanted in a way they could just monitor the city, and it could fit 
the tanks and could fit the the uh, what I mean the the, the their, I mean their power. Mm. Yeah, and mm. um, so colonialism always always uh, follow this pattern. They go into the city and control it. And in order to control it, they come up with these uh, force. Uh, at first, they enforce it. And then they will leave behind them traces of just, you know, terms like progress, hygiene, uh, uh, modernism. <laughs> and this is how you you make sure that the people after you, after you leave, will take the same, pick up the same strategy. And mm. this is what happened in Syria. Now, are you worried it's happening again? In a non, like, it, know, it has never stopped. It has never stopped. And that's how we ended up with, uh, of course, uh, war has so many reasons, but this is the main and major reason and major uh, uh, impact that uh, had on conflict. But what my hope is that the more we talk about, the more we highlight this issue, that it could be stopped. It could just, you know, uh, allow us or give us an opportunity to to break this cycle. And we have to remember that this is not a Syrian issue and this is not an, a, a, a regional issue in a region that the world have given up on. It's it's an international issue. It's it's something that is is taking place in every city around the world, and unfortunately. Mm. I mean, social fabric is breaking down all over the place. We're yeah. spending more time inside our houses than we are with our communities. All of these things, I think. You have are, uh, higher percentages of suicide and mental uh, mental health is uh, is just, you know, an, an, a topic that everybody is talking about. Mm. But the source issue is not being handled. Yeah, the, so the social isolation. Yes. Mm. So, look, Going back to your earlier life, why did you choose architecture? <laughs> architecture chose me. I didn't choose architecture. Uh, as um, I mean, this is a question also I, I, I get asked frequently. Uh, I just scored the grades that allowed me to, to get this major. And this is something... Because architecture isn't particularly well regarded in Syria, right? It's not something that you need. You, you said that, you know, you wrote somewhere that, um, mm. that, that, you know, medicine is the top and then dentistry and then, and then you know... It's well regarded. I mean, it's, uh, it's like uh, the third... Let's say medicine is the top, and then uh, dentistry and uh, pharmacy. Uh, afterwards, it comes third place. All engineering uh, majors, architecture is one of them. So I wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want to suggest that you'd flunked out of everything. <laughs> but you came to love it. You know, you, you clearly and and you have insights about your profession that are internationally recognised as, mm. as being important and new. The other thing that came out of your time at university was that you met your husband. Mm -hmm. How did you meet him? We met um, because uh, in architecture school, that was something very nice at the, uh, at the college that we had a community. Unlike other colleges, we the 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 seniors and the, the graduates and postgraduates kept visiting back uh, 
the university and kept kept relationships with other students because there are no barriers between uh, the years. So uh, a freshman student could help out uh, a graduate student mm-hmm. at the same project and learn on the way because it's a creative and artistic uh, uh, major. So that's how we met. He he visited, uh, he had friends there and uh, we just, you know, happened to be in the same group of friends. He was from quite a different background from you, right? Yeah. He came from a neighbourhood called Baba Amr? Yes, Baba Amr. Okay. Yeah. Um, which was um, not as sort of middle class as the, as the neighbourhood that you grew up in. Mm. And you write in the book that and I'm quoting, to marry my husband, who was born and raised in Baba Amr, I had to give up the idea of a conventional wedding. Our two worlds could not be united even for a night. Yeah. How's that played out in your married life? Very well. Okay. <laughs> We're best friends, and uh, that's that's what matters. And uh, we just, you know, we fortunately, we we share so so much of a common understanding uh, of of our lives and of uh, the life around us and that's how we just you know we are partners in and on so many levels luckily uh, so that proves i mean background is just you know sometimes it's a, ta- a challenge but in our case uh, it has i mean it, it had no effect have your families come to accept each other uh, they didn't have to. I mean, the war broke after we married in just, uh, I don't know, like seven years. And they they were, you have to understand, they weren't like enemies or something. They they, But they had different customs and different rituals and different um, traditions. So they weren't uh, in hate of each other. But they knew that they, you know, cannot accept the ways of life of each other. Uh, so there wasn't, I mean, better uh, relationship. But it w- it there was just no relationship. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And you have two children, Naya and Ike. Yeah. Um, why did you decide to, to bring them into the world? What was it? Oh. Did you always <laughs> want to be a mother? No. No. <laughs> I know that some people just pre-plan every step of their lives, but we just lived our lives. You marry, you have children, and that's it. I mean, (laughs) no much uh, thinking behind this. Yes. How have your kids come through the war? They are very different in terms of personality. So my... And age as well. So my son was very young. He he didn't know any life other than war. Whereas my daughter was six and a half at the time, and she she had an understanding, or she, she grasped what what does it mean to have uh, a life pre previous to the war, uh, and I think the war had shaped uh, certain aspects of their uh, their personalities in terms of. Um, my husband put it as they become stronger and they are more aware of the world. They are just, you know, they know. And I think this is true of all the war generation who is not too traumatized. They become uh, 
you don't see them as very naive sometimes. I mean, the innocence of childhood, not in a bad way. I mean, they will become uh, aware of so many uh, complexities that you could you could do an interview like this with them. I mean, just the children of war is like that. I mean, just, you know, they become deeper. But on the other hand, uh, some people and, or some children become uh, uh, more... Not cruel. I mean, the word just, you know, they become stiff. Tougher? Tough. I mean, yeah, but I mean, not in a good way. They become just too hardened mm -hmm. uh, inside because they had to protect themselves some, from so many hardships. So they become just, you know, very tough and hard. How did you prevent that from happening to your own children? By love, basically. I mean, when you just, you know, you have to be very uh, careful. And, of course, I mean, obviously, you have to be very careful with what they can see and what not and how to... We didn't lie to our children, something many Syrian parents did, unfortunately. They found uh, that lying to their children is, is uh, as a, pro a protecting technique. But we didn't lie. We didn't. We because children know, mm. and they. It will take more time, and will take more patience uh, to 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 explain everything and go through everything and uh, uh, have difficult conversations with them and answer so many why questions that mean not. Very not the easiest questions to be answered. So, why does he or her, uh, he, she, uh, kill? For example. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we had we with honesty and love is just you know what what we surrounded them with. What sort of future do you hope for for them? It will sound through all this interview that I don't put much emphasis on future. It's something of, uh, it's, a, it's a choice in life to focus on what you've got in your hands. Not be passive, just be positive, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's just a difference of what moment to choose. So people might choose to be positive by aiming at something at the future and plan the future. But the war taught me and I, from the questions you've asked, you, you just maybe discovered that since my childhood, it's just, you know, live the moment. But in a very, I try to be in a very positive way. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not a person who just, you know, don't give a damn or something. It's just, I try to focus on what I ha have in hand and do my best uh, at this moment and leave it, leave the future that I have no control of. Mao Al Sabuni, it's been so wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Mawa Al Sabuni joined us for Antidote 2018. You can listen to her talk from the festival on our other podcast, Ideas at the House, and you can find the link to that in our show notes. Next week on It's a Long Story, we continue with the theme of architecture with Kevin McLeod, the host of the TV show Grand Designs. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Joshua Craig and John Gardner, mastered by Riley Edwards. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan. 
Our research is done by Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Thanks to Jacqueline Booten, Flo Mitchell and Nerida Ross. I'm your host, Edwina Thrusby, and I'll catch you next time. 